You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from drawntoastory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change with a particular interest in identity, belonging. And this podcast is about the lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. And it's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. I'm really excited about today's guest. I met this amazing woman and was so loving the conversation that we had. I thought, right, I have to get her on my podcast. So today I'd like to introduce you to Motsabi Rupa. Now, Motsabi, her pronouns are she, her, and she is a race, identity and belonging expert who is passionate about supporting parents to build belonging healthy racial identity and strong self-esteem in children of mixed or black heritage and who are living predominantly in white spaces and contexts. Motsabi grew up a mixed race, I'm putting that in inverted commas because that's what she's a child in the 1990s in the UK in a blended family in which she was the only person of colour and her parents took a colourblind approach to raising her which meant that she ended up navigating the experiences of race and racism on her own. And as a result, Motsabi spent much of her childhood believing that there was something wrong with her and suffering from high levels of internalised racism, low levels of self-esteem and generalised anxiety. And so no doubt this has led her to where she is today, where she currently designs and leads the delivery of education, health and child protection programmes for an international children's organization. And she also works as a consultant designing and delivering workshops to corporate and government organizations across Europe for those who are wishing to embed diversity, equity, and inclusion into their everyday work. So welcome, Motsabi. Thank you so much for joining me. Today. Oh, thank you, Kath. It's a great introduction. It's, it's like really amazing to hear someone play that back. I'm like, who? Is that me? Yes, that is me. Who's that? <laughs> that is my story. I really did think I was yeah. mad when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> it is weird that isn't it when someone reads back your life and it's like oh actually oh, oh I've done quite well for myself yeah. or you start you it's it's a weird weird state I first wanted to ask you if you could just tell us a bit more about your childhood and what led you that journey to where you are now and the work you're doing and, and that that process for you yeah definitely um so it's been it's been a bit of a long road actually I'd love to be able to say that my childhood is like full of joy and just a load of fun and you know but the truth is I had some really joyful memories and I did have fun but you know the reality of it was that I actually felt quite alone Mm. and I think the key reason for that was because I had quite a kind of extreme experience of navigating race and racialization because Mm. I was the basically the only brown face in my family right you know and I'm growing up in in the UK in the 1990s which is like predominantly white spaces anyway um, and it's not like I go home and, you know, every, I've got people who look like me, I'm reaffirmed, it's a safe space. Mm. It was kind of the same at home. And that is basically because, you know, my parents, my mum's uh, white English, my dad's black South African. Mm. And I think they just assumed they didn't really need to talk about race or talk or to mm. kind of, you know, break down the, the likely experiences I was going to have. Mm. That's fascinating. So, and I think, you know, a large part of that is because, you know, they would never really talk to me about the likely experiences I was going to have. And I think mm. that's for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, my mum's my white. She didn't go through this experience herself. Um, mm. So, you know, she 
probably based her parenting style on, you know, thinking about what she went through as a child. Mm. But also my dad being black South African, his experience of racism under apartheid had been very, very in his face, you know, very Mm. extreme, like segregation, violence, all the really obvious things. And I think he just kind of assumed and probably hoped that actually, you know, coming to the UK, he didn't really have to worry about these things or, you know, I wouldn't go through them. Mm. Um, but the truth is, it's it's kind of, I think you said I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Yes, you are. <laughs> Same shit, different flavor, right? So, mm. so racism in the UK has a different flavor um, than in other countries, but it's still there and it's still very much impacting children and it's still very much impacted me. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating when you talk about your father and I'd never thought about that extra layer of it being apartheid and South Africa that actually if he'd been a black man from another country, it might've been a different story for you as a, as a childhood, but that layer that's been there from South Africa, the impact that down the generations that, that I don't think I didn't certainly think about. And I mean, that's my, the, the white privilege of not even thinking about that, but yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's funny. I think, you know, I think the defining factor is whether or not, and this is why I'm so passionate about what I do, mm. Well, you know, if the parent, if the parent is black, if one of the parents is black or both parents are black, if they have grown up in a black majority space, mm. then it's likely they've seen their presidents, their doctors, mm. their teachers looking like them, right? Mm. And as a child, the key thing is that nonverbal communication. So have you got a question mark in your head as to whether you can do something? If you're seeing people look like you doing that thing, you won't necessarily have that question mark. So I would say, you know, even parents who maybe both are black, if they're moving to the UK as well, it's suddenly something they need to start thinking about a lot more. You know, how do I reaffirm this child? How do I show them that they are of value when actually, you know, the research is still strongly showing that in schools, television, outside of the house, the communication is still to this day going to be there's something wrong with you because of your colour. And that comes in through these quite unconscious but very impactful ways. Um, and most recently, that huge case that we've been looking at with the lady in waiting in the royal family, who head of a charity, kept saying, but where are you really from? And just kept going. I, and I at first just thought, oh, it's just a, an old woman who didn't know any better. But but she just kept going and going. And it's like, it's just not not right. Really did. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the mixed experience in particular, because, you know, when like mixed people of mixed race, quote unquote, are not a monolith, but a large proportion will pretty much get every week, if not every day, that question of where are you from? Um, And, you know, that's not, I think people of colour do get that living in, you know, white majority spaces, wherever that may be. But if you are mixed, it is like the research is showing this is a theme, this is a reoccurring theme. And I haven't quite got to the bottom as to why and whether it's like, you know, people feel they can ask a bit more because maybe they see you as slightly closer to whiteness. (laughs) You know, Mm. that's one theory. But ultimately, I think it's really that idea of the binary, right? Mm. So that idea that you're like meant to fit into one category, man, woman, white, you know. And if you're mixed or if you're somehow not within that binary. Yeah, that's another whole level of, oh, I don't know what to do now. And they're like, no, you must choose, you Mm. must choose. And the truth (laughs) is, you know, actually, if you're mixed, you've got multiple Mm. heritages. Yeah, yeah. And that's so exciting, I think. For me, I've, I've thought about this in terms of identity because I'm obviously, I'm a white woman and I therefore look like I fit in the UK. But I open my mouth and I start to talk differently. So people take me as an insider and I get things said to me 
that they wouldn't say if I was a different skin color or if I couldn't speak English or whatever. So, and I'm fascinated about as humans, so much of our behavior is about human survival. Like we do things to keep ourselves safe. And, and I think sometimes, I think there's an inherent systemic racism. I think that's absolutely there. But I also think there's an element of humans. Like if I think, if I can understand you on my terms, then I feel yeah. safe. But actually we forget about the person that we're saying, who, who are you? Where do you come from? And I mean, this is the whole point of this podcast is I want to call out these things right. and talk about these challenging conversations because my one question is your every day, multiple times a day. And it's bloody exactly. It's that idea of the mosquito bite in the mosquito bite video, mm. right? Like, okay, one or two is yeah. okay. If you're getting all the time, it's going to be very, very sore. And I think in particular yeah. for children, and this is why for parents of mixed children or parents of children racialized as black, when they start going to school, it can be a really, really sore point because that child is going mm. kind of from the cocoon of the family and friends to a space in which other children will start asking them this stuff. It's especially if their parents aren't working on that nonverbal communication and reading them mm. books where people do have different skin colors and that's normal. And that's, that child will then start thinking, oh, maybe this is a question I need to ask myself. You know, what am I? Why am I different? And, you know, they'll feel othered and that's tiring and that's, yeah. that's how it is. Yeah, and if you're like you, where you're not feeling you can ask about it at home, it's like a subject that's not talked about and it, it yeah it gets very complicated yeah. the not talking thing is is really serious because actually essentially and you know I, I I try and come at it through a sense of empathy and I do because I think it really comes mm. from love like parents are like you know I don't want to taint my child I don't want to like expose them too early to the ills of the world like I want them to have fun and be enjoy and be an innocence but the truth is it means you're not really preparing and guiding and supporting your children because they're going to go through this anyway so as you say they won't mm. come back and you know come back and tell you and there's no safe space to give them that context and so two things happen they begin to feel isolated and the other thing is like what happened to me and the research is showing it wasn't just me you know you begin to think <laughs> that there's something wrong with you because why are all mm. my friends not getting these questions? And in this way, everyone is asking this thing over and over and over. And, you know, and mm. that's only in kind of a light microaggression way. School becomes a real watershed moment often within mixed families or, you know, even families who both where both parents are racialized as black because you go from, you know, the space of the home where you're normal, you're normalized, like there isn't this question to going to nursery, going into school where kids will come with these questions, the same questions that adults come with, especially if their parents are not reading them books because of that non-verbal communication bit where children have different skin colors as in the real world, right? If that's the first time they're seeing another skin color or they've only really come across it a few times, it's natural that a kid is gonna have a question, right? The kid is not coming from a, a space of malice. No, all the layers of adulthood that comes with that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, but as, as the child receiving that frequently and going from a space of it's not being a question to like, you know, um, what, what, why is your skin tone this color? Or, you know, an example I came across is, why is your skin covered in mud, you know? <laughs> and it's like, if that's happening a lot, then they will have a question mark as, you know, who am I, where am I from? Or, you know, the, the younger version of that. And you start to ask yourself, and that is, that's an example of what we would call a microaggression, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah. not even a, a kind of bigger incidents of racism um, mm. or not necessarily that a child would necessarily pick up on that that's different to children saying I'm not going to play with you 
yes. of, right? Where they're really enacting that prejudice that they've they've kind of internalized from their parents. But if you're getting that frequently, yes, that does become very sore. And I guess the main point here is as an adult, if you are not talking as a parent, caregiver, even if you're a grandparent, if there is no space to talk about this with that child, and if you haven't opened up those channels of communication, that child is going to go through that alone. And they haven't got the context or the understanding or the skills to make sense of it. And Mm. what happens is the child begins to genuinely think there's something wrong with them. Mm. Mm. I can imagine that that because schools are so much more focusing on diversity and being anti-racist and all of this inclusion work that you might get a child who comes along to school who hasn't had these conversations at home and then comes and they're suddenly treated differently because the school's trying to be really really kind of inclusive and then it confuses the child because there's that other other layer of it's not just you've got a different skin color but it's like oh we need to behave differently we need to include you and all and it's like over almost like white saviors you know what that's such an interesting point and I think I think the research isn't there yet because it's still in terms of school, right? It's still at a very early age. And there, you know, the majority of schools, I think, are only maybe just starting to integrate anti-racism. They will start at a level of the teacher, right? Training the teachers. So I just, I, you know, there's not even data out there as to how many schools are really doing this properly and what the impact on the kid is. What we do know is the impact of them not doing it and how serious that is, right? Because if you haven't drawn a really clear line under racism and, and you know, re- making really clear that even like, even I say, <laughs> but you know, that racial slurs, like language, anything creating that hierarchy is not tolerated. And very, very few schools do because that involves a lot of work. Mm. Then this stuff is going to be be widespread, right? So, and, and these are recent, re- very recent pieces of research. So I, there was a study in 2020 by the YMCA that's 98% of black and mixed children in the UK have experienced racism at school. So I think what you're saying is a really interesting thing that we need to look mm. into, but actually that's kind of the more privileged problem from later mm. on when we started doing this work more. Yeah, yeah it'd be a, a kind of a nice problem exactly. to have rather than... Because, yeah. you know, the reality mm. is schools are not, are not safe for kids right now. And it's coming from, as you say, you know, other, other children where, you know, who haven't had the opportunity within the family to talk about this and kind of undo that programming that's coming, perpetuating that, but also in particular from teachers and um, from, from the adults, of course, you know, mm-hmm. this thing around adultification, this concept. And, and again, these are, these are studies from the last you know, three, three, four years that um, black mm-hmm. children are more likely to be seen as what we say adultified, seen as kind of um, adults and, you know, versus innocent younger children and adults in them being over-disciplined, you know, picked on by the teacher and over-disciplining can, you know, get quite serious and it leads into much higher school exclusion. So where does that come from? Like, can you break that down in terms of clearly there's underlying unconscious bias and there's stuff going on, but can you tell me yeah, more about I that? Mean, the, the way I describe it is programming, right? So we're all, it's that concept of we're all growing up in this water together, breathing this air together, right? And if you take the UK specifically and education specifically, there are three ways in which Black people are portrayed in education today. And that is aggressors, mm. as uneducated mm. and as slaves, so oppressed. And if I 
back even to my own, you know, my own school experience, the first time we actually covered, you know, history that included people that look like me, even though there have been black people in the UK, you know, for centuries, was slave trade. Mm. And of course, you know, you're encouraged to also, you know, study present day and you start getting and you know there are so many studies mm. on how you know very similarly um we are portrayed in very similar ways in particular as the aggressor you know on news and in the newspapers so you know it kind of makes sense that you know people are therefore going into whatever the yeah. space like you know mm. fear you know kind of lack of mm. empathy and that hierarchy yeah these are these are the images i've seen and so you're going to be one of those whatever talk about yeah. storytelling it goes back to even if you think about the books and that you know the stories we were told as children that association mm. of the, the kind of innocent mm. protagonist very white blue eyes you know and then mm. the kind of deviant kind of the baddie character looking very deviant mm. to that and you know you can trace these stereotypes and these stories or scripts as i call them back right through history. And this is what's so important, mm. as I say, in terms of the, pe- the, the, the role the caregiver has in providing context. And they, they were developed quite purposefully for a very specific reason. And that was about dehumanizing. You can mm. absolutely link it back to the justification for being able to you know, go to Africa and you know, colonize and enslave people. If you do that, then there isn't that level of empathy and people aren't gonna say, hang on a minute, that's right. But if you're saying actually, this is needed because these people are bad or these people are aggressors, you know, there's a whole justification. So you can follow the history. Mm. And the point is that the legacy of that is still around today and the manifestations of it that we're seeing. Yeah, completely. I, I see it in Australia as well, my home country with, with Aboriginal people. And I'm currently at the moment writing a history up for a particular place in, in Queensland. And you can see from the history and the the records the this constant dehumanizing of of aboriginal people for the benefit of the the white people that were coming in and how destructive that was on so many different levels and why it's still an issue and it's so so unconscious right and i'm sure you do a lot of this in your work as well like the the way that it comes up and the kind of litmus test is often in people's language so i'm currently Mm. in south africa on holiday and until 1994, they, there was segregation here. Still in certain communities, you hear it in the language. So I was, at, I was actually at a doctor's the other day and he talked about his garden boy, boy. <laughs> right, mm. so they're kind of really as if they were a child and a kind of, you know. Uh, yeah, grown man. As... is a grown man with a whole family. <laughs> I know, it's awful, I hate it, it just, yeah, my, my wife, I you're probably not aware, but my wife was born in Joburg and um, she talks uh, similar experiences of just awful things that have happened and that she's seen and just like and what they used to try and do to, to combat that as, as white people. But just, yeah, it's it's awful. And, and it's it's very hard to like it's so ingrained it, it's not an easy fix this stuff it takes a long time it does. but the thing is and this is why I'm so passionate about working with parents because there is this magical window in children between two and seven a child's a, a child's brain um the child is learning as fast as they will ever learn in their life mm. developing very very quickly so that is where all the programming is is laid down and mm. you know if it's laid down in the ways that we're talking about through the language through media through teachers then you've got to go through what you're mm. talking about is that long process of undoing that mm. and that's that's what I myself as well if we can get it right in that age and it's simple it's not mm. hard it's, it's talking about this stuff it's showing the books it's mm 
being truthful with your kid essentially then not have to do this undoing no No, (laughs) and it's much easier to prevent rather than do afterwards it reminds me of those wonderful videos I've seen online where you've got two kids that are like that kind of age tiny little things sitting there and one kid's a white kid and one kid's a a black kid and they say well how are you like how are you different and it's like well he likes cars and and I like trees and it's like they don't they're not even it's not there for them until it all suddenly starts coming from adults and all these other external yeah, influences. Exactly. And interestingly, so kids actually have an awareness of race. So, so skin color, the categorization, mm. yeah. you know, this person looks like this, this person looks like this in the same way that someone might have blue eyes or brown eyes, or someone might have a beard, someone might have long hair from one. And that's fine. There's nothing, you know, these categories, mm. like it's good to see, right? There's nothing wrong in seeing how we look different. It's, it's, it's nothing yeah. wrong with that. The, the problem comes in with the associations of that, right? The kind of prejudice and discrimination around them, that, that, around that, those categories that they will learn from adults. And they do start learning that quite early in the same ways that kids learn everything from us, all of our philosophies. And so as young as three, there's you know, evidence that they might not play with someone due to the color of their skin. And it's not hard to counter that. It's not hard to counter that. And as I say, until that age, it really is the nonverbal communication. So it really is the diverse book where they're seeing people of different colors, you know, playing together, being together, and you're not communicating a hierarchy. Mm. And then just things about, you know, really thinking about, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, a friend of mine is an expat. She works for a, ch- a children's organization abroad and her partner is, is from Africa and she's from Europe. And, you know, one of the things I've been talking to her about, when they go out, they tend to go out with their different friendship groups. So, you know, she's very much in that expat kind of white community and brings the kids. And then he's with his kind of Nigerian friends. And it's something I point out, because <laughs> we do talk about these things, because actually non-verbally, what you can be communicating to your child is there are different spaces for different races. No, but it's just naturally happening. That's yeah. very much what my parents, mm. my mom, you know, had her friendship group in the UK. And when they had dinners and stuff, my dad would actually leave the house. Wow. And he was invited, but he didn't feel in himself welcome. And as a child is going to pick up on that, you know, whether it's because mm. a parent feels welcome or not, if you're just doing that separately, they're going to pick up on that. And it's very, very easy for them to think, you know, start concluding, especially in a child's brain where there's, there's complexity, but there's not content. That that's mm. how it works. And if you're mm. mixed in particular, that's confusing because it's like, yeah, it's like what where? Yeah, yeah. Where do I go? Which? Mm. How can I be loyal to both parents? And so it's just really watching the messages of that nonverbal communication. Mm. So how do you encourage parents to observe that and be aware and pick themselves up? Like, are there or things that you can recommend for parents or ways to make that happen? You know what, there's so many things I can recommend, but the way I tend to try and approach these things is just like kind of teaching that lens Mm. because be aware of these concepts and these, these, the implications of our actions in these examples, we can apply them to others. There's Mm -hmm. so many, you know, creative things you can do. If, if, Mm. If we understand as parents that, okay, it's about, it's, if you think about it from the child's perspective, where might I be placing value in my action, right? If all my art on my walls is white and my kid is racialized as black, if all, most of the friends coming into the house, because that's, you know, I value this person, like, are just white. If we're watching television 
watching a kids program or you know whatever and they're seeing that all the presidents all the doctors you know <laughs> are just white and the representation of you know black and brown people as i said are somehow pressed or aggressive mm. or uneducated it is gonna in that very simplified way mm. without that context pick up on that so there are you can be as creative as you like in ways of just countering that but mm. it's the, the key is to be conscious of that mm. and just you know, take those actions, think about, okay, let me look up some other films, let mm. me get some books in, and, you know, let me think about the school I'm going to send them to. Yeah. And, and this is why I'm so passionate about working with families from living in white majority spaces. You know, if you're not in a place like London that's quite diverse, there are still things you can do, right? Mm. And the other thing is, of course, bringing in the history. So as I say, starting to bring in that context and understanding, mm. because without that, the conclusion will so easily be, there is something wrong with blackness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a natural conclusion that you'd make if, if you're not represented, if you're not visible, if you're not out there, it's not going to be. I mean, I say this with like the communication of if people's social media. I said, as humans, we so often just reflect ourselves rather than lots of other people. And it's so often I see in people's social media that all they ever do is white stuff. And I say to people, put black people in, in like other people of color in and don't use them as the example like broaden that and try and just this representation is so important 100%, especially on social media as you say because of the algorithm like that's mm. putting that trend on steroids and perpetuating itself even um black influencers now they have like a day a week sometimes where they put a white face on. <laughs> i love that <laughs> it's, it's you know white face day. <laughs> that's so good I love that. it, it ups the the likelihood that their their accounts will be viewed by the algorithm mm. Otherwise, they're preaching to the converted. They need to be reaching other people as well. Exactly. I say that to people with LGBTQ plus stuff, because I'll often have people who say, well, I follow this person who's homophobic or transphobic, and they follow them because they say it's healthy to understand what other people think. But I say by following them, you're adding to the algorithm that actually promotes where they are and how much their stuff gets seen. I said, you're better off on, on Twitter or somewhere of making a list and keeping a separate record so that you're not helping promote that person i fully agree i really see social media as an accelerator so it accelerates mm. the discrimination but it can also accelerate the opportunities as well mm. so one of the reasons why i think now you know it's actually a great time if you're in a mixed family or if your children are racialized as black and you're living in these white majority spaces it's a great time to also be on social media mm. there are accounts about the books that you can read depending on the age of the kid and just different techniques and, and you know families coming together and sharing strategies they're using mm. to counterbalance messages for kids it's it's you know the tools are there mm. it's like two sides of the, of the same coin really but you know important to be careful definitely mm. but it can be a space to organize as well yeah what is so good about social media, as you say, is that there's an independence there in terms of people, anybody and everybody can be out there, which has its bad points because we have all the people that we don't want to, we don't want their views. But but it is, it's really powerful that you, you can get out there. And so what I would say to listeners is that after you've gone and checked out Sabi's webpage and looked up her, then go on to, to social media and you can actually look at all these people and start to educate yourself. It, it's it's not other people's responsibility. It, it's us. We We need to be to be doing it ourselves. I and the key think. thing is, you know, there's a big theme within mixed families is, is can be and, and was in mine, um, frequently be um, this, I, this feeling of isolation, right? Um, and there's no need to be, you know, we can mm. find each other now on social media and have these stations. Yeah, absolutely. 
What about if kids haven't had that initial stage that you're talking about when they're young and then they're having to unlearn? Is it possible as what you do or as a parent to start to bring that in at a much later stage? I mean, it's never too late, I'll say, but, but that unlearning, it sounds like a very long process and potentially a painful process. I mean, you've talked about the help that you've got and then also the study you've done and it's it's obviously it's absolutely who you've become and that that's wonderful but if kids aren't going to go into it professionally how do you start that process if they've had those formative years already I mean really it's never too late as you say it's absolutely mm. never too late and before they're an adult and even when you're an adult I guess the difference is when you're an adult you need to do this more yourself right but when mm. you're a kid you can do it more with family and as parents you can you know be more involved in that but I, I think the difference is you know, the closer to adulthood the kid is, the more, I would say, ideally you can do this from earlier, but the more mm. opportunities there are for the parent and the child to learn this stuff together and unlearn this stuff mm. together. Yeah. And there'll probably be less to unlearn, right? They've been yeah. this earth for less time, having this reinforced yeah. less. And the key is, the great thing is, the older the kid, the more you can move into verbal communication and having discussions and you know and mm. that amazing age when kids I mean it's very annoying for parents sometimes when they start to ask the why <laughs> the why <laughs> is an opportunity that is mm. what you want to be teaching a critical thinking skills right if the world's messaging be it on social media and the news in the classroom is in terms of blackness you know you, you must associate the skin color with these certain mm. attributes then the way to kind of counteract that is with context and with questioning. You need to develop mm. in your child. The kid needs to develop these skills of questioning, but but why? You know, why, mm. why is there that association? Why is that the case? Why yeah. is that really the case? You know, so I know mm. it's incredibly painful when incidences happen, when racist incidents happen. Um, incredibly mm. painful, especially actually for the parent, right? Because they have to go through their own grief of like this is my child who I'm meant to be protecting and I need to guide mm. the child but that can actually be an opportunity to start this process and to start having conversation mm. and you know there are two sides of it it can be the learning obviously there's a supporting but the way in can often be the learning you know just listen to the mm. experience what happened and then starting to question you know why do you think that teacher is picking more on you and on these other kids and then of course you start to guide and bring in the context and you can say, you know, actually, this doesn't just happen in your classroom. This happens to a lot of children. You know, to mm. go into the reasons why and start learning it together yeah. and reading it about it together and, and them. And obviously that's with holding space for those emotions in whatever way you would hold space for painful emotions. And I think mm. the thing is just to like, as, as excruciating as that can be, hold that space and they don't run mm. away from that because that's when the child will feel left alone. Come you know, work together and say, okay, how shall we, you know, be that? How mm. how shall we approach this? And then come with some ideas as a parent. You can come with ideas like, shall we go and talk to the teacher? Shall I go and talk to the teacher? You know, and just mm. just try and include them as much as possible. So I think, um, as I said, ideally between two and seven, you know, that's a great time to. I mean, just actually, I would say start from when the kids bored. You know, think about the. Yeah. And things, but between two and seven, there's such a great opportunity. Then, as they get older, you can just have go into more more depth. Go to museums yeah. together, learn about the history together, research, mm. go to media together, and have these conversations. But in a way, it kind of, in some ways, becomes easier. Yeah. I mean, stuff is easier for kids. It's it doesn't come with as much baggage. Yeah, and I think that's important to remember, isn't it? That, like you say, as a parent, if your own 
experiences that are potentially going to be triggered, but actually kids will pick up on discomfort and it, it's so much better to have the conversation and actually to look at this stuff and actually start to, to address it because it's not, you're not going to get the long-term change otherwise. It, it, you can't just leave Exactly. It. And if, if the kid is the one, you know, being affected by this, otherwise they are suffering in silence and they will really pick up mm. on, as you say, that idea that like, okay, so we don't talk about this stuff. We just suffer in silence. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's just another extension of where it's all come from like it's just another vein of how it's all continuing now the impact into to this exactly. day and, age. and you know and, and it's hard because as I say a lot of the time the colorblind approach comes from the idea that we're protecting our children but then we look at the stats today on mental health which is what happens when that you know resilience tax gets mm. lower and lower and lower because these incidents are happening and you know you're kind of suffering in silence um black people in the UK are five times more likely to be sectioned than white wow. people um so yeah, there's just this really strong link between you know racism and um and mental health yeah it's also that thing of just as a white person just because I haven't experienced racism in that way it doesn't mean it doesn't happen like why can't we just listen to people of color and just accept what they say? We don't have to challenge it because, I mean, it's a separate issue, but I know if I'm being discriminated against as a gay person, you know, as a mixed race person, you know, you, it, you can feel it. And so we need, it's about, let's just actually believe people. And, and someone said to me the other day, what's scary about the world at the moment is that we're believing things that aren't true and not believing the things that are true. Mm. And I think part of, so much of this inclusion stuff is is about that is actually hearing the voices from people like yourself and actually people telling their story so we can actually not just have closed ears and start to listen 100 if if you're not doing that with a child essentially you're teaching them to not trust themselves not trust yeah. themselves you know however you want to term it and we know that's incredibly dangerous because actually mm. if your kid is feeling uncomfortable around someone, you really, you know, you as a parent, you really want them to be able to mm. speak to you and to be able to get yeah. out of that situation. Mm. Um, so what happened to me is I you know, didn't talk about this stuff in the home. And so, you know, it was just really internalized the idea that it's not to be talked about and that the way I'm feeling when I'm experiencing this stuff is wrong. And so mm. I learned to mistrust myself yeah. and actually into the teenage years that can be quite dangerous for your kind of physical integrity mm. actually. You know, thank yeah, god I, I yeah. am safe and I was safe but it did you know I can correlate that with some hairy mm. situations where I just didn't have the voice to say actually I'm not comfortable with that I was in that mode of like pleasing mm. adults and pleasing everyone and not thinking yeah. about I'm not comfortable with this I'm going to remove myself from the situation that's the really important link that's mm. really important to think about it's about mm. our protection it's about safeguarding mm encouraging your child to absolutely listen to that instinct and knowing what what's going on and and also because if if a child says this person was horrible to me and they and they think it's about skin color and you say oh no I'm sure it wasn't it, it's like a gaslighting as well and it, it's it's almost abusive it, it emotionally abusive yeah, totally. and also you know like, and that's the fact that the child is saying it's about skin color means they really know because they've got some language right yeah it's when they're not saying and that you know it's this as a parent it's so important to be aware of these stereotypes that you know whatever, mm. however, whatever way your kid is racialized you need to be aware of the stereotypes associated with that and of the, the experiences mm. that can happen because before they have the language and they have learned you know the context it's really important that you're aware in, ca in case 
this is happening mm. and you can step in mm. right because it mm. isn't going to say until until they're further along on the journey oh the, the teacher's doing this because of this then yeah like, they might just say well I don't like that teacher or they might just start yeah. liking that class yeah behavior starts to get poor or yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. just so important to have that wider context as well and kind of educate yourself mm. yeah my last question to you in terms of talking to people I'm interested to know have you then had now as an adult these conversations with your parents have mm. you talked about your childhood and gone back to that impact with that's happened that's such a good question so um i have and i think i i started trying to have this conversation during adolescence because you know the way in which i undid this this anti-blackness that i internalized within myself my way in was through studying history so context then you know theory mm. and then race and racialization so I was really into history by, by my late teens. That was kind of my way. It's kind of like a general, the personal way in. Uh, they mm. weren't always the most satisfactory conversations, yeah. but I've had them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, now, you know, and the most important thing is I've been able to provide context. My, my, my parents have been able to kind of share some of their experiences as well. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm now therefore able to mm. come from this place of empathy and understand that, you know, of course, like all parents, they were doing the best they could at the time of the tools they had. But no, it wasn't some kind of reconsideratory, like we got it wrong. Yeah. You know, my point here isn't to say they got it wrong. They were part of this context. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've had a few conversations. I've also written a book chapter about some of the experience as well, just because, you know, my intention with all of this is I'm sharing this stuff so that other families don't have to go through such a painful journey because my journey and as I said it's a bit more extreme because I was in a blended family so we I, my parents up and I was the only black person in my family yeah um, was particularly painful but when you look mm. at the literature and you look at the studies these themes are reoccurring in mixed families and also uh, people who are transracially adopted as well um and so you know I always think if some of this information mm. can just reach you know, uh, let's say like a, a white mom living in a white context and the mom's isolated as well, by the way. Um, and the kid is also yeah. feeling isolated. If it could just reach the mom and they just like maybe listen to it and they're like, oh, let me check social media and then find some of these groups. Mm. There's so much they can do. And as I say, it's never, never too late to have that conversation with their kids. So that's why I share mm. this stuff. And I guess I, and I have had, you know, moments of conversation with my parents, just, just to be honest. And obviously when I was doing the book chapter, I wanted to, they were comfortable with it. You know they get it they get it in mm. their own way maybe they don't necessarily you know they're not we're not 100 on the same page but that's okay because i've been able to provide that context for myself yeah i think for me with this work what i'm interested in is giving you the platform to talk about this so that if there's a white mum out with uh their child their, their like a mixed race child like you that you're not getting a white person coming up saying oh are you adopted or like doing those kind of conversations it, it's all of us need to be aware so that we provide a better context as yeah, well as they are going to get that if you talk to them mm. yeah I've heard it often from friends who yeah before the baby is born you know what skin color is it gonna oh, make sure the babies are so cute you're so cute that is fetishization and so it's and then it's you know the incidences in the hospital but as I say the real pain point gets to an excruciating level when often when the kid starts nursery or school and that's because you know that the the way the child's brain is developed and, and what they what a kid mm, then mm. Kind of takes on from that point from three four years old and, and you know you can't control the external environment so what I'm saying is just have the tools to child proof the child 
and the think about the school and engage with the school because mm. have that open conversation so that you know you can child proof as much as possible the school the home and then as and when things do happen you can be there to support and guide and the kid is not on alone and will not you know go through this it, it's not it doesn't need to be such a painful you know experience for kids it can be a real opportunity for learning for understanding for empathy that can be applied to all you know all intersections of, of identity um, so I'd, yeah, I really encourage like any, if any, any white mums are listening, the key thing is you're not alone. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a really great way. I like that. It's the last line. You're, you're not, you're not alone. That's, and there's always opportunities. That, that's absolutely fantastic. So, wow. Thank you. I feel like we could sit here and talk for about six hours all about this subject. There's so much stuff. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, how can listeners uh, find you on online how can they get in touch if they want to have a chat with you yeah so the easiest way I'm kind of putting everything on my website which is motsabirupa.com um, mm -hmm. and yeah from there you can like find my social media I'm on instagram motsabirupa yeah brilliant well thank you so much Sabi it's been wonderful thank you so much for Amazing. your time thank you